The Ringer Gambling Feed is your one-stop shop for all things betting throughout the NFL season from week one all the way through Super Bowl 58 in Las Vegas. We have you covered every which way. We got our favorite futures. We got props. We'll discuss the lines. And of course, we'll throw in a few parlays. That's a given. So whether you're a sharp or a square better, we'll be breaking it down in terms hopefully everybody can understand and we'll try to win some money along the way. So be sure to subscribe to the Ringer Gambling Feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to get into the Pats with my buddy Doug Kide from the Herald in just a little bit. Of course, they get ready to play the Bills on Sunday. We got into the future of Bill Belichick and why maybe it makes a little bit more sense to keep Bill around now. And we'll also get into Bailey Zappi and now his future with the organization after the Patriots. Of course, they don't have a top two pick of the draft anymore. So we'll do that all with Doug in just a little bit. And as always, I'll give you my picks for this weekend slate. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. But before that, I wanted to get into the Celtics because we're recording right now. It is 10.48 after the Celtics beat the Pistons where they had to come back and win in overtime, dramatic fashion. They were down 19 at halftime. The third quarter, they get back into it with that huge run, 35-16. to And look, there were issues in this game. They had rebounding issues. In regulation, they gave up 16 offensive rebounds. The Warriors lead the league at 13.2. And the Celtics allowed the Pistons to get 16 in regulation. That's just, it's an unacceptable number, right? I mean, the Pistons were crashing and the Celtics weren't ready for it. And they should have been ready for it considering the Pistons make the fewest three-point attempts in the NBA, not surprising by their now 28-game losing streak. The Celtics weren't ready for it, but they overcame all this because of talent and because of some specific players. So I'm not like upset that they only won in overtime. This team is rolling right now. There were issues in the game. They got to be clean around the defensive end in terms of rebounding and all that. But I had one really major takeaway from this game because you're not going to go through the whole game against the Detroit Pistons. Although I will say this, a game that I had really no expectations for whatsoever, it did deliver like it was an entertaining game. In the second quarter, you're thinking, oh, geez, are they actually going to lose this game? So 
it was kind of aggravating from that perspective, but it was entertaining. The second half was entertaining basketball and into overtime. But so this is something that I've been thinking about for a while, my takeaway here. And it's been on display not just tonight, but in other nights as well, but more specifically in this game tonight. And the Celtics, we know over the past few years, they have had their issues at times in the playoffs. Most of the time, now they had their issues defensively at times last year during the playoffs against Miami, but most of the time when the Celtics have their issues in the postseason, it's on the offensive side of the floor. You think about two years ago against Miami when they struggled, it was turnovers. Same thing could be said in the NBA Finals against the Warriors. We've seen them late in games, their offense gets stale. It can get stuck in the mud. Well, you know what the reality is? Tonight, there was no Jalen Brown, who, by the way, has been awesome for the Celtics lately. But Tatum was out there. Jason Tatum did play. And you know what the Celtics' best late-game offense is? And it has been all season long. Derek White, Porzingis, two-man game. Or just more specifically, giving the rock to Porzingis late in games. Because if you look at it on the season, and I've mentioned this before, but Derek White is an elite pick-and-roll ball handler. He's in the 89th percentile as a pick-and-roll ball handler. He shoots north of 48% from the field as a pick-and-roll operator. If you look at Porzingis, he is in the 83rd percentile as a roll man. 1.35 points per possession, okay? 54.8% from the field. And by the way, that 1.34 points per possession, the best offense in the NBA is south of 122 or just around 1.22. Porzingis is 1.35. That's how efficient he is as a role man. Now, speaking of post-ups, Porzingis is in the 98th percentile as a post player. 1.44 points per possession, 71.4% from the field in terms of his field goal percentage. So the reason I bring up the pick and roll numbers is the role man and also the post-up stuff is because a lot of the times it turns into a post-up for Porzingis at the elbow, right? So he has been your best late game weapon. We've seen it through the years with Tatum and Jalen where they've had their moments. No doubt they've had huge games. In fact, the Celtics, I mean, Tatum was awful in that 76er series and he comes up with huge shots late in game six, right? Like we've seen this from Tatum. We've seen Jalen Brown hit big postseason shots, but it's not consistent, right? But what Porzingis has, his post-up game, the two-man game with Derek White, It's just reliable. It almost always delivers. These guys are very efficient in those roles. If you look at the last three third quarters, the Celtics, when they wanted to take control of games, like in the Lakers game, they went through Porzingis. When they wanted to, tonight, get back in the game, they went through Porzingis. Just go to the third quarter. To start that off, he posts up Cade Cunningham, easy bucket, 68-53. Then he posts up Knox, gets to the line, hits both free throws, makes it 72-62. He cans a wing three to make it 74-65. He created an extra possession after a free throw miss where it ends up with an Al Horford three. Then he gets to the free throw line to make it 82-77. So because you have all these guys that are smaller players across the league that are not as big as Porzingis, he can post those guys up. And especially, he can absolutely maul switches. We've seen it. It's like he doesn't get bothered when there's a defender all the way up on him because he can just shoot right over him. It's like easy. It almost looks like when a father's playing against his young kid because Porzingis is just that much bigger than guys. It's just, it's very efficient offense. He had 35 points in this game on 21 shots and seven free throws. 
if you compare that with Jason Tatum, and this is not like an indictment on Tatum. He's a great player. Tatum had 31 points, but he took 31 shots and eight free throws. Porzingis hit, did his 35 on 21 shots compared to the 31 for Tatum, right? And like I said, I'm not taking shots at Tatum. I love Tatum as a player, but let's be honest. Part of the reason that Kristaps Porzingis is here, and, and not that the Celtics would ever admit this, but part of the reason that Porzingis is here is because you need a great cast around Tatum, right? He isn't the guy that can just close out games, right? Where he's not that top-class maestro of offense, right? Like, for example, like a Luka Doncic's or like Nikola Jokic's. He's not that guy. He's not the LeBron James type of player that can orchestrate the offense late in games and make all the right decisions because one of the issues that Tatum has had is his decision-making. Let's be real about it. Tatum can make some really poor decisions. I can even just think about it from this perspective. Tatum took three step-back threes in this game tonight with James Wiseman on him, okay? James Wiseman, a center. He can just go, and look, he can separate and get a step-back three on Wiseman, but that's still not a good shot, okay? Can he hit it? Sure. Does he hit him consistently? No. You know what he can do? When he drives to the bucket, it's pretty consistent when he gets there, right? I mean, you think about this. And this goes back to the whole decision-making process with Tatum. Pull-up threes. He takes 5.8 per game. That's the fourth most in the NBA, and he shoots 29.6%. So why would you be taking 5.8 pull-up threes per game if you only shoot 29.6%? It's not a weapon, okay? I don't know why he takes so many of those, right? So again, this I want to be crystal clear on this. This is not a shot at Tatum. He's a great defender. He's a great player. He's a unbelievable rebounder. It's just one flaw in his game. He is not a great decision maker. And just like an overarching part of him not being a great decision maker is the amount of step back threes and to the point of making here, pull up threes. And we've seen late in games, he can make bad decisions, right? I mean, we saw it the other night when he has an opportunity late in the game to win it and instead of driving he settles for a step back three when Jalen is in the corner and if he drives the defender is either going to have to commit to him or he can go all the way to the basket right instead he settles for a step back three we've seen that too many times over the years so in these playoffs eventually when the Celtics get there of course this to me is going to be Joe's biggest test who are you going to play through if you're Joe Missoula late in these games right We've seen Tatum and Jalen at times struggle in those moments. Neither is a great playmaker. And I give Jalen a ton of credit. He's really improved when it comes to that. Tatum has his well throughout his career. But they're not great playmakers, right? Playing through Porzingis, it is easier and it is efficient, right? And if you think about it, just late in this game tonight, top of the key three, bam, 97-96. He posts up Ivy, gets a switch on him, 199 and one over him. Then he has Bogdanovich over him, scores over Bogdanovich. Then he posts Cade, scores over him, makes it 110-108. Then you look at the actions where White was involved and how they benefited. Pick and roll with Porzingis and White. So White decides to reject the screen. So Porzingis is setting it on the right side. where, And what White does, he goes away from the screen. So he goes to his left near the sideline. And what happens there is... The big sort of drifts a little bit, and what White does, he takes the two defenders with him, kicks it back to Porzingis. Porzingis pops, and he nails a three. So instead of doing the traditional pick and roll, they both read it together, and Porzingis pops and gets a three. A pick and roll, rather, with Porzingis. And this time, White just goes right to the basket. Has a great finish, and one makes it 
Then he hits the top of the key three, does Derek White to make it 119-115. But all these actions that these guys are running together, they seem to work, right? Like I gave you the numbers off the top there. Tatum is an elite, or excuse me, White is an elite pick and roll operator. The numbers would indicate that. And the eye test would indicate that. Porzingis is an elite roll man and an elite, and an elite post-up guy. The numbers would indicate that. So Tatum, he had a big night. But the thing that stuck out to me in this game and really out West too, is how well Porzingis played and how big of a weapon Porzingis is. You're winning games that you weren't winning last year because of the weapon that Porzingis is. I just know that the Celtics right now, going back, they had issues in the late game offense throughout the years of the Tatum-Brown era. And you could say, yeah, they were younger and all that. I understand that. But I know there's a solution for why this team or how this team can avoid getting stuck in the mud offensively. It's Porzingis and it's Derek White, and mainly Porzingis. But those two guys together operate really efficient offense, and Derek White never turns the ball over either, right? Like, that's been one of the Celtics' issues. So the other thing I would just mention on White, he had 23 points on 15 shots, five assists. He had two blocks. I mean, this guy's blocking the crap out of the ball. And now the one on Ivy, to me, I don't know how he got that. I mean, he's just unbelievable. Like, how... He's not like, people wouldn't look at him and think he's like an unbelievable athlete. Like, you see Jalen Brown, he's an elite athlete. Like, I mean, like, we see how powerful his dunks are. It's just White gets off his feet so quick, and he can jump off one or two feet. We were talking about this a little bit the other day with Michael Pina, but he can just elevate so quickly to get the block. And the one on Ivy had was ridiculous, especially considering he Ivy was coming with speed, and White was running like his back was to Ivy, and he somehow got up and blocked that shot. But anyway, he carried the offense to start the fourth. He had, if you look at the first 11 points of that fourth quarter, pull up two, made it 84-82. He drove through his right and had kind of like this gliding finish to make it 86-84. Then he had, on a, off a of pick and roll, he had a lefty finish to make it 88-84. Then he found Al for an open three to make it 91-87. Then he drove, found Kata for a lob to make it 93-93. So, and then by the way, that the next play down on the other side, he had the block on Ivy. So that was how he started the fourth quarter. He either scored or assisted on the first 11 points and had that critical block. So I, just getting back to the whole theme here, this idea of playing through, I guess, the perception of your third and your fourth best player. Because if you were going to ask people who are the best two players on the Celtics, most people would say Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. I totally understand that, right? Those guys are going to make the All-Star team, and the Celtics are sort of doing a campaign to get Derek White into the All-Star game, which it feels like he has a he has like a legitimate case right now. But I think this is going to be a challenge for Joe Mazzulla, right? Like, when you get into the playoffs and these games are going to be close, especially when you get to the second round and hopefully knock on wood to the conference finals and beyond, you're going to have to, like this Celtics team, they don't operate great when it's just the flow of the offense all the time, right? Now, there are certain games when they do, right? Like against the Kings when they are knocking down threes left and right. Against the Clippers when they're knocking down threes left and right. Like it all looks good and you don't have to overthink it because you're blowing teams out. But... When it gets grimy and you struggle to score at times, you do have a button you can press now. And that is playing through Porzingis or running the two-man game with Derek White and Porzingis. But I just wonder, in a playoff series, there is eight minutes left in the fourth quarter, it's a tie game, or five minutes left in the fourth quarter, it's a tie game. Is Missoula going to be willing to be, because I do think this team needs more direction with its offense, right? Because 
You need, like, this isn't a team that's always going to make the right decisions offensively. We've seen this not only through the years, but we've even seen it this year with some of the decisions they make where sometimes we know they can get three happy and all that, right? Like, we've been through this a million times. But is Joe going to be willing to say, like, hey, there's five minutes left. Porzingis has to be involved in every action. Like, we need to do everything to make sure that we take advantage of this because that's what puts the defense in more of a bind than anything else the Celtics do. And I do think that's a real challenge. Like, even at the end of the game tonight, when they get the look for Tatum, Derek White's inbounding, I know you want a good passer inbounding that. Certainly understand that. But I would have had Drew inbounding that and have Derek White running something too, where if Tatum doesn't get the ball, Derek White is also an option and something with Porzingis as well. It just felt like they were sold on Tatum's our best player. We have to get him the ball late. And I just feel like if the Celtics do do that in the playoffs or it's like, hey, we got to run through Tatum in the late game action, I think they're going to be unsuccessful doing that. I think we've seen that through the years. And I think the main reason you went out and got Porzingis is because he gives you something you haven't had in the past. And I do think he's the most reliable late game option. And that's the conclusion I've drawn through the first whatever amount of games it is now for the Celtics this season. Like this is how you win in the playoffs is late-game touches for Porzingis. Two-man action with Derek White and Porzingis. I just wonder how you balance that. I'm not, I'm not crazy. I'm not saying like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are not going to be involved heavily late in the game. But I do think there has to be a focus. Hey, this guy is a mismatch nightmare for teams. We have to involve him late in games. And we've seen when they do what the results usually are. All right, a lot more to get into coming up next. We're going to chat with my buddy Doug Kide from the Herald. We'll get into the Pats' bills. We'll get into Bill's future here with the Patriots. We'll get into Bailey Zappi as well. The NFL regular season is wrapping up, but there's still time to get in on the action with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your $5 bet. That's $150 in bonus bets, win or lose. So I really like the Rams this weekend to cover 5.5 on the road against the Giants, and I like the Niners to cover a big number 12.5 against Washington. Get right game for San Francisco after struggling last week. And at this point, Washington is trying to lose football games. The app is so easy to use, and there's so many different ways you can bet, like live game, same game parlays. You can find bets in the new Explore tab, make a parlay in the Parlay Hub, the best way to find popular parlays, and more. So visit FanDuel.com Pike and make your first bet a layup. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. $5 pregame money line wager required. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Herald, it is Doug Kai. Doug, I hope you had a good Christmas getting ready for the new year. How are you, man? Doing all right. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I, I get a little bit of a flu situation going on here, but other than that, I'm, I'm feeling good, although I was not feeling great on Sunday night after the Patriots won that game. So I, it was just crazy. I was talking about it the other day. Like I, I had no expectations that they were going to win that game. So I said this a couple of weeks ago, Doug. I thought the Giants' loss was the best result the Patriots have had since they won their last Super Bowl over the Rams because... The Giants were another team that was battling for a top two pick at that time, right? And 
the loss really meant to me, hey, they're either going to get Caleb Williams or more likely, and I would have been fine with this, I love Drake May or Drake May. And after they beat Pittsburgh a couple of weeks later, it was okay because they were still in a position where, hey, they still have the number two spot. But you got a little bit worried, right? And then you get to the situation where Christmas Eve happens and the Broncos end up losing to this Patriots team somehow. And the Patriots were coming into that game with a ton of injuries as well. And I was running through it the other day on the pod. I just feel like it's almost impossible now for the Patriots to get Drake May, right? Like, it's going to be very difficult if they even wanted to trade up because Washington's going to be motivated to get a quarterback now, right? So I just think that's going to be incredibly difficult to do. But the whole thing, it's just kind of weird, right? Because there's all this noise surrounding Bill. He wasn't planning on his next quarterback, right? Obviously, he's just trying to win football games right now. But do you think the consequences of winning these games, the Steelers game, and of course, the Broncos game, are they registering with Belichick and members of the organization or not just because their futures are so murky? Like, do they even look at this stuff? I don't think that they look at this stuff like me. I don't, I mean, I, I, I have no idea how Robert Kraft feels about what's going on right now, but like that would be the person who would care or who should care the most about right. yeah. you know, trying to lose games. And, and, and I don't think necessarily that's what he wants to be doing based on some of the reports that we saw from, um Ian Rappaport and Jeff Howe that like you know the reports that Bill could still earn the job back with wins over the last part of the season like I think that everyone involved in that organization wants to win games even though it probably is one of the worst things for the long-term outlook of the organization right now because I mean it, it is it is a tricky situation because like anything could still happen with those quarterbacks between now and April I, I, there's a world in which I have no idea, you know, how teams are viewing all these quarterbacks, but like crazy things happen. And maybe Jaden Daniels moves up above one of those guys, or maybe one of them starts to fall or who knows what's going to happen between now and April, but you want to be picking as close to one of those right now, probably top three spots as possible to get one of those top three quarterbacks. Otherwise, if you're picking four five, six, somewhere down the line, you might have to give up a future first to move up to get one of those quarterbacks. And I mean, if you look at the way that the, the Panthers are playing this season, like <laughs> they probably don't have their future quarterback in Bryce young. And now they don't have a first round pick in the 2024 NFL draft. Like that's a pretty good way of tanking your franchise. If you don't get the right guy. Yeah. It's really crazy to think about how bad that Carolina situation is at this point in time. I do think too, one of the other things I was thinking about, I mentioned this the other day, I actually, and I know Jaden Daniels won the Heisman and all that, and he has great statistics, and he's had a great season. I mean, the one real blemish he had was, I didn't think he played well in the opener against Florida State, but I mean, what we found out is Florida State's a really good team, so maybe the, maybe there's no harm in that. But I do feel like if Shador Sanders was actually in this draft, it would make it more interesting, because I feel like I, I prefer Shador Sanders to Jaden Daniels, and obviously it feels like he's going back now, which... I get it. He wants to go back to Colorado and play for his father. But I feel like that would make the decision like Shador Sanders. I could see them take it at number four. I've mentioned this before in the pod, just like, hey, he's Brady approved. Brady worked him out. He's friends. Uh, obviously, Brady's friends with Dion. Kraft likes celebrities. Obviously, Shador Sanders is already famous. I think he's like, is he? he's either the first or the second highest paid guy in NIL. So I, I just don't. Th and we'll see. I mean, obviously, there's a lot that's going to happen before now and then, not just with the draft, but with the organization in general. But I, I don't see them taking Jaden Daniels at number four. So I feel like they kind of 
they're out of this quarterback situation. So I want to get to this because Callahan wrote a couple of weeks ago that his understanding is Belichick recently expressed uncertainty about the next season to some close to him. Mike Giardi then reported this week that Belichick has expressed doubt about his future in New England to the staff at various points over the last few weeks. We know that Ann Rappaport had reported that Bill has not sit down with the Crafts. Then Bill does his weekly spot on the Greg Hill Show this week, and he was basically asked if he wants public support like Woody Johnson gave to Robert Sala, Nathaniel Hackett, and Joe Douglas, which, by the way, that's a totally different situation. I don't know why these guys are getting support. Like, they've not done a good job. But Bill said, quote, I don't really know anything about the Jets situation. I don't know anything about that. So let's get ready for Buffalo here. Go back over the Denver game and make some corrections on that and talk about things we could have done better, things we need to build on and then move on to Buffalo. So typical Bill speak, like he's not going to say anything. So what's your read here? Have they made a decision and they're just trying to get compensation back if Bill has a destination that he likes and the Patriots feel like they can get something back for Bill? Or like, I would have thought this idea was crazy a few weeks ago. Is there actually a chance that they haven't actually made their mind up yet? I think there's a chance that they haven't made their mind up yet. I mean, that kind of goes to to Ian Rapport's reporting from a few weeks ago that who knows? I mean, things can change over the last half of the season. If they can rip off wins against the, you know, the Broncos, the the Bills and the Jets, then who knows? I, they they kept things obviously it wound up being a 10-point deficit, but they kept things close against the Chiefs in the first half of that game, beat the Steelers. I, I don't I don't think that until Robert Kraft meets with Bill Belichick, you know, either whether whether that's during the season or after the season, I don't think anything is is firmly set in stone. And I don't know, I'm still I'm still of the belief that like there's a possibility that that Bill could come back just because I don't I don't necessarily know if that would be the best thing for the franchise. And for me, I would need Bill Belichick to bring in some other voice in the front office, whether mm-hmm. to make the final say or to be willing to argue with Bill Belichick, because that's a lot of what you hear around the team is like if they're like working out running backs before the team, like you can ask someone on the team like, hey, what do you think is going to happen? Like, which guy do you think you're going to sign? And ultimately, they're just like, you know what? I have no idea. It's just like whatever Bill thinks of the moment. And like, (laughs) I think that there's, I wouldn't necessarily say that that's like frustration on their part, but I think that they're basically just like, there's a, there's a self-awareness of, I can think whatever I want about this. It's just on Bill Belichick's whim, which player that they're going to sign. And I think that that's the thing that at times you need to strip away on this team of like, okay, whether it's the conversation of, you know, I, I don't necessarily know specifically who made the Juju Smith-Schuster over Jacoby Myers call. I think like Matt Groh might have been involved in that. But like, like if those types of decisions, when it's Bill just deciding like, all right, we're going to draft this guy, whether it's, you know, or we're going to sign this guy or whatever it is, like there needs to be a lot more conversation involved there. There needs to be someone willing to fight back and maybe take over final say. And I think that final say might be something that Bill wouldn't want to give up but if he wants to stick around as head coach of the patriots i think that would be within the best you know best what what he always says like it's about what's best for the team or whatever it is i also think that you know the returns from matt grow so far since he's been uh in that top job haven't been fantastic so maybe you maybe it's even just changing up that job bringing it back someone like dave ziegler bring someone from outside the organization so that's why I'm a little bit hesitant to say that Bill Belichick definitely won't be back just because the defense has been so good. The the team has stayed competitive. 
And like great coaches do have down seasons. You don't like it being three or four years in a row. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm not a hundred percent ready to say yet that Bill won't be back next year. Yeah, it's a fair point. And the other thing I would mention too, is just like somebody with new eyes that hasn't like Adam Peters was here like years ago from 03 to 08, but he's been with San Francisco. Somebody that can just have a new view on things because like Matt Grow, Bill's friends with his dad, right? Like we've heard this before within the organization. So just getting somebody from outside that's been running a well-run organization or has been like the number two somewhere else to bring him in. And if it means, hey, this is how you keep your job, maybe Bill would be willing to do it because it's like, He's in his 70s. Does he really want to start over with a different organization, especially considering like he's got the bones of a good defense and he's going to get arguably his two best defensive players back, although you can make an argument now that Barmore's in the conversation of one of their top two defenders. But I think another argument Bill would have is if you look at Zappi. So Zappi, let's just say, as you mentioned, like they play well in these final two games. Let's say they beat the Jets, but they lose to the Bills, but at least they keep it like competitive. So in that case, the hypothetical, let's say Zappi looks good in both games. That would be four out of the six starts that he's been good this season. The Chargers game was bad. Pittsburgh, I know the second half wasn't good, but he still finishes with a 115 passer rating completed north of 67% of his passes. Denver, he was awesome. I feel like this is the first time we've really seen the quarterback win a game for the Patriots in ages. Like, I don't even think Mac Jones has a signature win on his resume. Their best win was against the Bills when he threw the ball three times, right? So I look at it from that perspective. You go back to last year, and I know it wasn't the best competition, but he was good in both of his starts last year as well. So I wonder if sort of what Kraft would now have to look at is, hey, like I was pushing Mac on the organization. I brought Bill O'Brien in. Bill O'Brien, and look, I've been underwhelmed with Bill O'Brien, but hey, if Zappi has six out of eight good starts going back to last season, well, maybe it wasn't as much of a bill problem as it was a Mac. And I'm not defending all the front office stuff. I'm just talking about like the actual on the field stuff, because look at the guys that Zappi was playing with the other day, right? He didn't have Kendrick Bourne. He didn't have what? Juju Smith-Schuster. He didn't have Ramondre Stevenson. He didn't even have Hunter Henry. And they were able to play well. Like how many times over the past two years? And look, it's been justified at times. Have we talked about the lack of weapons on this Patriots team? And we saw Zappi go out there. And he had a completion percentage above expectation of 16%, the best in the NFL. And he made Devontae Parker look like an outstanding receiver in that game. So maybe that's sort of the argument that to keep Bill is maybe Mac was the problem. No, I think that there's certainly a possibility of that. And I would say that um, as far as signature wins for Mac Jones go, I think you do actually have to include the Bills game from earlier this season when he was True, pretty, yeah. pretty good in that, that Bills game. Yeah. I, that's only on my mind because I was just talking to Andrew about like the the Mac Jones signature win, and that's probably like the number one win on his resume, a you know mid season game against the Bills. But I mean, yeah, if if Bailey goes or if Bailey Zappi goes one and one over the rest of the season, that also means that he's what five and three as a starter over the last two years, when the team was two and nine this year under Mac Jones, and and you brought up the point of the players that Bailey Zappi is playing with, like he has now played games without Ramondre Stevenson, Juju Smith-Schuster, Devontae Parker, Demario Douglas, Hunter Henry. And then you know, I'll talk about the offensive line as well. Like Vidarian Lowe was playing left tackle for most of that game. James Ferentz started the game at left guard uh, before they had to go give way to Antonio Moffey. Like the, they're just like stripping players constantly from Bailey Zappi and he's still been relatively decent over these these last uh, you know four games or whatever yeah the four games that he's played so far. So 
I, I've been I've been impressed with Zappy. I still think they need a quarterback of the future, but I do think that a lot of the problems were stemming from Mac Jones. I think the people within the organization would say the same thing. I mean, when I was talking to people at midseason, like what's the offense's number one problem? A lot of people said it starts with the quarterback because he was supposed to be this heady player who was able to, you know, make calls at the line of scrimmage. You were supposed to be able to depend on him. He was accurate, didn't have the best tools, but otherwise you could depend on him. And then he's out there making boneheaded mistake after boneheaded mistake. And like, yeah, Bailey Zappi still does make some of those, but at least now they're, they're lessening. At least he's decreasing those, those boneheaded mistakes. And he's able to push the ball downfield a lot better than Mac Jones was. So I do think that Mac Jones was a pretty significant problem within the within the Patriots offense. And yeah, if you fix that, and if you bring in a quarterback even better than Bailey Zappi, then yeah, maybe this team could still be competitive under Bill Belichick and, and even under Bill O'Brien uh, as the offensive coordinator. Yeah. And I think the other part of it too is like the stats don't tell you this, but I mean, his stats were really good last week, but I mean, this is not something you see with statistics is the team does rally around him. Like you can tell that he plays with a lot of confidence, and I don't think like Mac had that with the team. It just felt like the team was didn't believe in Mac, right? Like at, at a certain point, when he keeps throwing interceptions, you stop believing in the quarterback, especially when he has some of those atrocious ones, like the one we saw in Germany at the end of a game, the one we saw against Dallas, where he's throwing the ball across the field after he had gotten away with it once. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Like you can't be making plays like that. And I do think even when Zappy makes a mistake. It doesn't affect them. When Mac makes a mistake or he gets sacked early, it feels like it ruins this whole game. With Zappy, I feel like he responds to adversity within the game. So you mentioned like they still need their future quarterback. And look, I'm not crazy. I don't think Zappy's like the ne- the Patriots quarterback for the next decade or so. But now that I think about it, if you have a top 10 pick, I said the other day, I want them to take one of the two receivers that's left there or Brock Bowers from Georgia. I want them to get a weapon and then go out in free agency and sign a receiver, right? That's why I said like Bowers makes a lot of sense to me because you can go sign the number one receiver if it's T Higgins, whoever you want to go after. But is there a pot? Maybe you bring in a veteran to compete with Zappi. Is there a chance now that Zappi is the starting quarterback in 2024? Because you look at the veteran market. I can't imagine that Flacco, like he's better than Deshaun Watson right now. So like, is Cleveland really going to just not keep him around. I have to imagine they want to do that. So like Russell Wilson, I, I, it looks like he's going to get cut. He's getting benched so he doesn't get hurt. So they can like move on from him and the contract's not fully guaranteed. I mean, they're still going to have like what, 80 mil in dead cap money. So I, I, I don't think that's the move that I would make. I don't know if it's like a Gardner Minshew type, if they bring him in, but is that sort, to me, this seems like the most likely route now. It's like a veteran journeyman type guy and Zappi entering camp in 2024. And it could even be similar to what the Lions did this year where they drafted Hennon Hooker. Like you still take the quarterback in the second or third round, whether that's mm. Michael Penix or Bo Nix or J.J. McCarthy, like one of these lower tier quarterbacks that you try to develop similarly to the way that you did Jimmy Garoppolo back in 2014 to eventually become a a starting caliber player. And then, yeah, you also bring back Bailey Zappi. And then also, yeah, I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo would be a possibility. Russell Wilson, like it depends on who's running the offense, obviously, but it does seem like once again, Kirk Cousins, like there's going to be veteran quarterbacks available out there that could write the ship better than what they had with Mac Jones. And yeah, Jacoby Brissett, there, there's all sorts of potential options out there if they can't get one of those top two quarterbacks to still improve the position. And I think that 
you know, Andrew and I were just talking about this, where there really wasn't a legitimate competition between Bailey Zappi and Mac Jones in the summer this year. I know that Bill Belichick said there would be, everyone thought there would be, and then Mac Jones was taking nearly every first team rep. And one of the main reasons behind that was because Bailey Zappi practiced so poorly throughout the summer and the preseason. But I was asking him yesterday, like, when did you actually start to feel comfortable within Bill O'Brien's system? Because I think that that was the number one problem for him, the, for him this summer is that he was having trouble grasping Bill O'Brien's new system. And he was saying that it really started when he was able to start like practicing more, having more say within the game planning meetings and actually starting games. Because like, I think that does go to the lack of competition, even this summer is that like, yeah, Bailey Zappi looked bad, but he was also playing with the second teamers. He wasn't getting as, as many reps. He wasn't as you know, he wasn't a major part maybe of the decision-making process that they were making early in the season as far as game planning goes. And now you are seeing him play better when he does have more of a stay in those those matters. So I could envision a scenario where the Patriots have a second or third round pick, a veteran quarterback in Bailey Zappi, and somehow Bailey Zappi outplays those guys in training camp and at least starts the season as the starter. Like, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility based on what we're seeing. I don't think that's getting too far out ahead of myself either, as far as the players that we're talking about who could be competing with Bailey Zappi. So I don't know. I, I It's probably disappointing for Patriots fans to think that they're not going to get one of those top two quarterbacks, but I do still see a, a, a possible scenario where there could at least still be a rookie quarterback in here um that would be competing for snaps during the summer which would obviously still be pretty exciting yeah that's a great point because if you have an early pick obviously like the Patriots are going to have in the second round and one of those quarterbacks is sitting there might as well take a shot on one of those guys it's also interesting too what you say about Zappi because that actually makes a lot of sense because if you think about it Mac when he came into the NFL he had Josh McDaniel's offense which of course we know there's a lot to that right like how many times have we heard through the years they can morph from game to game and run totally different things. And Bill O'Brien's more similar to that than he is to, say, what Matt Patricia was doing last year. Now, it was an inept offense, but it was a very simplistic offense. And basically, Bill O'Brien is combining some of the Alabama stuff to what the Patriots did prior to Matt Patricia, right? So it's like Mac was going to have a leg up when it comes to that. Zappy's coming from Western Kentucky a very simplistic offense. And I think that's part of why he thrived in his, and I get it, it was against the Lions and the Browns who last year, neither one of those teams had good defenses, especially the Browns, which is kind of amazing because now they have like the best defense in the NFL. But my point with all that is maybe it was just one of those things where it was, hey, it's kind of simple and he was making easy decisions and this was more complicated. Maybe that's why he did struggle so much and that's why it, he was so bad in training camp. And now that he has... Maybe that's part of why he has confidence now, too. It's like he understands what he's doing. Maybe he was just lost at it during training camp and it was affecting like the throws that he was making, like the mental part of it was affecting the physical part of it. Maybe that was what his issue was, because I had to tell you, Doug, like I I didn't think I would be impressed, but I have been like pretty impressed with Zappy. Like, I mean, like some of this, like he moving up in the pocket, making throws the other day. I'm like, dude, what is going on with this guy? Well, I was also thinking after. um like after the chiefs game, you know, he's making some of these tough throws, but like how much of it is, is purely just luck. Really? Cause like some of them just look so difficult. That he's like fitting through these tiny windows. Uh, one of the touchdowns of Hunter Henry, it would be a good example from earlier this season where I'm just like, 
all right, but like, can he keep that up? Like, is that sustainable? Is that him making a good throw or is that more luck on his part? But after this game against the Broncos, like it's looking more like that's Bailey Zappi rather than luck. And I, I do think those, those little things as far as game planning matter, because in his initial answer to me yesterday during his press conference, he kind of casually mentioned like, as I became a bigger part of the game planning process or like when I became part of the game planning process. And I didn't totally understand what he meant by that because I reached out to someone on the team being like, there's no way Bailey Zappi's not part of the game planning process, even as a backup, right? Like he's still in those meetings and they were like, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what he meant by that because like he would have been in those Tuesday meetings. So then I, I actually just walked up and uh, walked up to him in the locker room to be like, can I get some clarification on this? Like, what exactly did you mean? Because like, you've got to be part of those meetings. And basically he was saying like, yeah, on Tuesdays when Mac Jones is a starter, like I can have a say, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, like yeah, I can say like, actually I prefer the footwork, like this footwork on this play rather than this footwork on this play. But like, if you're not starting the game, it doesn't matter. It's whatever Mac Jones decides at that point. So I do think that those little things matter, especially when you're talking about early in the season when Bailey Zappi was coming in in relief of Mac Jones in the fourth quarter, the third quarter of these games and looking atrocious, it's still because he's doing the things that Mac Jones thrives on rather than things that he can thrive on. So I do think that's a big part of why he's looked better as a starter rather than he did it in these relief appearances. I will tell you this too. He is a way better performer at the podium than Mac. Like he, he's not a Patriot when it comes to that. He he does not care. Like, I think Callahan was telling me, like, I wish I had as much confidence in anything in life that Zappy has. Like, Zappy has so much confidence in himself, which I think is a good thing. Like, we talk about uh, the boss Bill Simmons all the time, like the irrational confidence guys in the NBA that think they're, like, as good as the stars. Like, I feel like Zappy thinks, like, hey, I belong, right? Like, I, I'm the, I'm this guy. He's also willing to show, and like as a as a quarterback, this obviously doesn't matter. But for fans, I think it should. He's willing to show more of his personality up there, and like he's willing to be a little bit more self deprecating at times as well. Like, it, like I know this in the grand scheme of things, these things don't matter. But like he like gave a response on WEI about it, how he's like not a Taylor Swift fan or something. Oh yeah. And, like, like someone asked him the, the next week, like, Oh, so you don't like Taylor Swift. And he was just like, no, hold on. Like I, like he, he was like actually showing a personality and willing to like play along and be like, listen, I don't want like the Swifties. Like I, I and once again, that matters. Most of the media second, most of fans doesn't play out on the field, but it is definitely, it's it's been um it's been kind of a nice change to go from mac always saying the same things every week to now bailey willing to give a little bit more and show more personality yeah i'm with you on that and it wasn't like he was basically saying he liked taylor swift like her old stuff better like when she was more country or something which it yeah which it kind of does make sense for him like he said he's a country fan right so it's like i guess he's not a fan of pie i mean She's probably like the biggest star since Michael Jackson. So it's like, <laughs> it's tough to dislike her, but apparently he did a good job clarifying that because the Swifties, I guess, were coming after him. All right. So I want, I want to touch on Gerard Mayo because, so he's 37 and let's say the hypothetical is they move on from Bill. We were talking about earlier that Bill actually, there is a possibility could be back now, but you think about Mayo and the fact that the Crafts made sure that he was back here. And I just think about, all right, so... 
The defense, I feel like Belichick's fingerprints, it's been his defense for 20 years. And I know Jordan Mayo is a part of that, but I also know Steve Belichick's part of that as well. And maybe you can clarify how much is Jordan Mayo not, but it feels like, okay, these it's three people that are like running this defense, right? And Jordan Mayo's part of it. And I look at sort of the teams that like, for example, when Kyle Shanahan got that job in San Francisco, he was the most wanted coach in the NFL. Part of that was like he had success before, but he kind of like had to get away from his father. Like with Robert Griffin, it, they were awesome. With Kirk Cousins, they were awesome. Finally, he had like he was good with Brian Hoyer and the Browns at the beginning of the season. He went there and then Atlanta, of course, he makes Matt Ryan an MVP, his best season ever. And he gets that job. I think even recently to like Shane Steichen, who Indy right now is eight and seven. They lost their starting quarterback in Anthony Richardson. Minshew has played pretty well. But I mean, the Patriots game, he was awful, but he's had some pretty good games and that team is competitive. And I just wonder, like with Gerard Mayo, like if you're going to move on from Bill at this point, I would imagine that means that Bill O'Brien's back here as well. I just I, I don't know if like you're getting this. Maybe it's just you feel like, hey, we need a change to make a change at this point. But I don't know if you're getting like a significant upgrade just having Gerard Mayo take over for Bill Belichick at this point in time. Like to me, to the point you brought up earlier, the biggest thing to me right now is the help with the personnel. Like I don't know about you, but I feel like this defense has been pretty well coached over the past over the past year. I mean, they're one of the best defenses in the NFL and their weak spots are going to be better when they have Judon and Christian Gonzalez back. So I, I just don't know if like this is the time to make the move. And I would imagine this like I don't think and Ted Johnson actually brought this up. I don't think the Crafts wanted to move on from Bill after this year. I think the only reason they are contemplating doing it is because it went south so so badly like nobody could imagine it it would have gone this poorly so I think that's the reason and if they do look good down the stretch maybe they don't make the change but do you see like Gerard Mayo having a big impact on the team like that they would be completely different from this year I don't really I think that like you said like the biggest change would probably be then that they would bring in the outside voice as a general manager it would almost be more firing Bill as the general manager rather than the head coach because then I don't think there would be like I think the defense would still be great under draw. I like and I don't know. I mean, I think the defense would still be good under Drod Mayo, but you're probably removing two of those three voices in Bill Belichick, and then you probably yeah. assume that Steve Belichick uh, might follow Bill <laughs> wherever he goes. There's a possibility that Brian Belichick, uh, the the safeties coach, would potentially follow Bill Belichick wherever he goes. I don't know what ha- what would happen to Mike Pellegrino at that point, but. I think that there is more of a chance if Bill's gone and draw takes over that the defense could potentially take like a, a slight step back. And I think that, I don't know. I, I just, I don't think that motivation is an issue on this Patriots team right now. I think that Bill Belichick has had to take a few more swings on players than he had to in past years, just based on, um, you know, trying to make those swings for, for home runs. But as far as just like personalities go, like Trent Brown, I don't think, Trent Brown doesn't seem fully invested maybe right now. Um, and he's kind of being a little bit more verbose to the media than he had been in the past. Like if you take a swing on JC Jackson, if you take a swing on Jack Jones, like I, I think that you're not losing the locker room because those guys aren't performing. Those are guys who just might not perform under any head coach. I don't, I don't necessarily know if they would perform under Gerard Mayo any better than they would under Bill Belichick. Like there could be, slightly better motivation from players from Drod Mayo. But like I said, I don't think that's a major issue. I don't think that Bill Belichick's coaching is majorly affecting the offense right now. So no, it, it's interesting. I I do think that in an ideal situation, as has been reported, like 
Mayo probably would have taken over as head coach in 2025. So that's another thing mm-hmm. that is kind of giving me pause about, all right, do they bring back Bill for one more year? Like, do they think that Gerard is fully ready just after one year with this raise and everything? And and maybe they just decide that, yes, he's ready. We believe in him. Um, Graf said that he's, you know, he has no ceiling as a head coach over the offseason, uh, which was very high praise for, for yeah. Mayo, obviously. Um, and I do think that he'll make a good head coach. But to your point, I don't know how much it's ultimately going to change things on the on-field product. I just think that depending on who we bring in as GM, that would be the the biggest factor that could affect the team and make them better, make the on-field product better, is finding someone who can have better drafts, make better decisions at free agency, make better trades, all those different things. Yeah, the no ceiling comment was ridiculous to me because it's like, what is it like LeBron James coming out of high school? There's no ceiling on this guy. Like Gerard Mayo, no ceiling. Like there's so many, there's, look, I get there's some really bad coaches in the NFL right now, but there's a lot of really good coaches like the Sean McVay's, the Kyle Shanahan's of the world. Like you could say, yeah, Kyle Shanahan, there's really no ceiling on the guy. Although sometimes in the playoffs, he has his issues. But the point being is like, you can't just say that about a guy that's never coached before. Hey, there's no ceiling on Gerard. Remember this, this is a conversation with Jason Garrett. Remember it was like, hey, the Cowboys kept him, even though the Ravens, the Ravens wanted him over John Harbaugh. And everybody thought Jason Garrett was the next star. And I'm not saying that um, Gerard Mayo is not going to be a good coach. I believe that he will at some point. I'm just thinking for next season, if it's really that much of an upgrade, if anything, I, I honestly think it could be a downgrade. And you bring up a great point, too, about like you could lose Steve Belichick. And I know people like to talk about the fact that, oh, it's Bill's kid. He's pretty good at his job. Like the defense is pretty good. Like he's been pretty good at his job. So, I mean... I think that that's that's a good point, too, when you look at sort of the future of the organization. All right. So you mentioned Trent Brown. I wanted to pick up one thing on Steve Belichick. Like he's the guy who's actually calling the plays out there. So obviously that's a big thing. And I I would also say that maybe right now, more than ever, the defense is on Gerard Mayo and Steve Belichick, because I think that Bill Belichick is helping out a lot right now on the offensive line with Adrian Clem. So like the current within the last two, three, four weeks, whatever it's been that Adrian Clem's been out. I do think that a lot of that defense is being led by Gerard May and Steve Belichick right now. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So you mentioned Trent Brown, and I know he's been dealing with an illness, but Mike Reese had the tweet the other day that he was part of an unusual rotation on Sunday night and seemed to be playing at a different speed than teammates at times. And he was not spotted at the media portion of practice yesterday. For Mike Reese to tweet this, this means something's going on, right? With with Trent Brown. So, and I do remember too, like the Malik Cunningham post when they got, when Malik Cunningham signed with the Ravens, he said, go flourish where your talent is respected. So that's definitely a shot at the Patriots saying they don't respect Malik Cunningham's talent, if you will. So what's going on with Trent Brown? Is he just like a malcontent again? I I think he's just not happy here. And I think that like, it stems from things as far, like, I think he was happier <laughs> playing under Dante Scarnecki. I think that there's just been like, I don't know. It, it. I think this has been kind of brewing all season where like if you talk to him, he's kind of ready to, to have a complaint session about everything. And like, I don't blame him. Obviously, the season's gone pretty poorly. He He's not saying all the wrong things, I would say. And I, I enjoy talking to Trent Brown, but I know that it's been internally discussed, the, the potential of putting him on injured reserve. I'm not sure what they're ultimately going to decide on that or not. Um, but yeah, was not out of practice on Wednesday. We'll find out in an hour and a half now if he's going to be out there on Thursday, but, um, it's too bad because when he's playing, he's one of the Patriots best offensive players. You know, he might actually be the Patriots best offensive player when he's out there. 
And there's just such a dramatic drop off between Trent Brown and Vidarian Lowe right now, uh, since so many of those other left tackle options are on injured reserve or not on the team, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I also there was a clip out there that the Patriots put out of you know Matthew Slater doing the oh yeah after the after the win over the Broncos, and Trent Brown is like in the huddle. But before Matt Slater even says, oh, yeah, Trent Brown just like pieces, walks away and and goes back to his locker, which was not the greatest uh, sign, you know, for for his current buy in. I will say that there was other players who like weren't even involved in that huddle, but like someone put that out there, like zoomed in on Trent Brown, just like walking away before everyone was celebrating and be like, oof, this is uh, maybe not the best situation right now. But I, I think he I think he got upset when I think it was Albert Breer reported that Trent Brown is still like perpetually late to meetings. I think that like Trent Brown took offense to that. And I think that he's wondering where in the organization that came from, like why people are talking Mm. about that, why that came out about him, why it came out about him now. And I think that I'm not sure if that's all of his frustration or if there's frustration or whatever, but I know that from talking to him, he didn't like that that got out there. He doesn't agree with the assessment and he's wondering where that came from. Hmm. Interesting. That's not a guy that I want, would want to have mad at me. <laughs> no. Like, come on. He's, that's a little, I mean, he's got to be one of the, is he the biggest guy in the NFL right now? Yeah, it would either be uh, Mackay Becton. Oh yeah, Becton, Almost yeah. as big or maybe as big, but like, they're both like six, seven, six, eight, three hundred and fifty plus pounds. So yeah, absolutely one of the biggest human beings in the NFL right now. Yeah, you do not want to get that guy mad at you. All right, one more Belichick question, then I want to get your take on this Bills game. So like, is there a job if the Patriots do mo- move on that to you makes sense? I mean, Nora Princiati from the Ringer she brought up like, hey, if Mike McCarthy flames out, like if they have a really bad loss in the first round, would the Cowboys make sense? My only thing with that would be like. He's going to work for Jerry Jones. Like, and I know that would, Belichick would be obviously upset about that because it's sort of like his rivalry within the ownership groups, right? Like those are the two most powerful owners, at least from my perspective, it feels like right now. And like Jerry has so much control of that organization. So I, I, and we saw it didn't work with Parcells, Jimmy Johnson, he won the Super Bowls, but he didn't last long because him and Jerry Jones couldn't get along. Those are two guys that obviously... Belichick has really good, well, I guess now Parcells, he has really good relationships with those guys. So I don't see it happening. Washington, it didn't really make sense to me until like, all right, it's near where he grew up. And also, hey, they could actually get one of the quarterbacks. Like maybe that one makes more sense. The Chargers situation, I don't know how much control he would have there. He does have the quarterback, but is is there a team that would make sense from Bill's perspective, you think? Chicago, they have the number one pick. Yeah, I mean, Chicago is a little bit interesting. Washington, it's just like, I don't know. I mean, like Carolina is one where people have talked about. And on Carolina, it just, it would feel so weird to see Bill Belichick and like Carolina Panthers, aqua and black. But I I said the same thing about Tom Brady back in 2020 playing for the Bucs and and that came true. So like... I like maybe if if Tepper's willing to give Bill Belichick just full control, do whatever you want to do, but it's not the greatest situation with the quarterback right there without a first round pick. And then, you know, uh, so Los Angeles, like the Chargers would probably be the best situation for him, right? Because he would have Justin Herbert. They fired their GM. They need a head coach. He could take over both roles. Um, obviously a, a very 
high profile city. I'm not sure how Bill Belichick would feel about living in LA, but like that one makes the most sense to me. I'm just wondering if the ownership is able to pay him as much as he would want to be paid. It's like the the top head coach in the NFL, because I do think that that's a team in the, in the past. I think there's been reports that they have some, some cash flow issues. So like spending yeah. that much guaranteed on a head coach could be a little bit tough. Uh, but just as far as situations go, I think the chargers is, would be the most attractive for me just because at least you know you're working with Justin Herbert at that point. You don't have to start over. You don't have to make the decision on a quarterback uh, like you would on Washington or maybe even Carolina or, or Chicago. So uh, that that would probably be the one that makes the most sense to me. Yeah, and that's why I come back to the team that makes the most sense for him is still the Patriots. Like if, if they still want him and Bill's willing to step back a little bit in terms of the personnel decisions, this actually does make makes more sense. I, I don't know, and I do think it's kind of – Maybe this sounds crazy based on where the team is right now, but let's say hypothetically, like, okay, so I, I think Barmore's a star. I mentioned that earlier. You have Christian Gonzalez coming back. You have Matthew Judon coming back, who, what do you have, 15 and a half sacks last year. Like, the guy was outstanding, right? And then you look at the... They need to adjust his contract after this year. So, like, I think Judon could come back, but it, that's not, like, necessarily a guarantee just based on his contract. Right, because they just did, like, the like the, the bump this year. It. Yeah. Yeah, so that yeah, hopefully I mean hopefully he'll be back because if they want to win next year, I mean they should bring him back. I mean, so okay, so hypothetically if Judon's back, you're going to have Barmore, you're going to have Gonzalez, and this defense we saw was really good this past season. And then they need help on the offensive line. That's something I th- think they're going to have to address more in free agency than it is the draft. I know they'll try in the draft, but Let's say you draft one of the two receivers that's going to be there after Marvin Harrison or Bowers and then you sign T. Higgins, this feels like, all right, at least you have the bones of a competitive football team, right? Like, I mean, it's not like you're a favorite to make it to the playoffs, but I think you could be back to where you were like a couple of years ago where you're competing for a playoff spot. Yeah, no, I think you definitely could be. I think the issue there is how do you get over the hump? Um, And that is getting the quarterback. And this is, I mean, like I'm kind of arguing with myself now at this point because I think that it can tank a franchise to give up a first round pick to to take a quarterback in the first round. But like if they do go the Russell Wilson or Jacoby Brissett or Jimmy Garoppolo or Bailey Zappi, whatever it is, like you hope to bank then on the second round quarterback where that's obviously a lot less guaranteed than the first round quarterback. But no, I think that they there's definitely a path for them to be much more competitive next season than they were this year based alone on the, like you said, those men, you mentioned the players coming back on defense, Christian Gonzalez, other improvements that they can make improvements along the offensive line. Like there's, they, they should not be a four win team next year based on everything they can do this off season, because they also have a lot of cash to throw around as well. They're spending like basically no cash whatsoever next year. And they have to meet that 90% threshold from 2024 to 2026. And you don't want to get too far behind. So I could see them spending like, 150 200 million dollars in cash this offseason yeah let's just hope it's not for nelson aguilar and john smith again although john smith was like decent in atlanta this year but that that spending spree was crazy i still cannot believe the the one that i never understood more than any of them like i understood kind of like a gamble on john smith because he was super good like after the catch like his numbers were awesome bill even said that he's the best tight end after the catch in the nfl it's like the problem in new england is he didn't get any he didn't make any receptions like that's kind of an issue but the Nelson Aguilar one, I never understood. It's like, 
who are you competing against? He was like one of the first free agents signed. I'm like, who are you going up against right now? You're also signing him after a career year. Like, yeah, that was actually something with Aguilar and Juju Smith-Schuster where like those guys were available for far cheaper the year or two before as free agents. And then you wait for them to have a career year and then double their salary in free agency. It's like, (laughs) that's like, that's the last way you should be spending money in free agency is to sign a guy at the absolute peak coming off a career year when he could have had him for a fraction as much a year or two prior. It was, yeah, both those were were wild in retrospect. And even at the time with Nelson Aguilar, I was like, what are they doing? Why this guy? Why is this the wide receiver you finally spend money on? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing too, because you think about it, it's like they had the ability to outspend Tennessee on DeAndre Hopkins. They didn't do that. They just like made their best offer. Yet they go out there and they make sure nobody else in the market can get a Nelson Aguilar two years prior, which is just hilarious. It comes back to the whole personnel thing. Uh, But getting to this Bills game. So, of course, the Patriots won the first game. A lot of that had to do with game flow. Like they got up 10 to nothing. Allen had the early interception. Bourne was awesome in that game. He had north of 60 yards, had a touchdown. And Mac, like this is one of the rare games that Bill O'Brien actually schemed it up. His expected completion percentage was the third highest in the NFL. That week. Now, I think the one way the Patriots stay in this game is the Bills, they have what, 24 turnovers on the season, tied for the ninth most. That's the one thing they will do is like Josh Allen will give you opportunities in the first game, give the Patriots credit. Who had that? I think it was Peppers had that early interception. Like he'll give you chances. You just have to find a way to make plays. I just feel like everything that's on the line for the Bills, right? I mean, and I know they get to pl- have to play Miami again, but they killed Miami or earlier this season. What was it? 48 to 20, right? And you look at the rest of the AFC. I know that Baltimore, that's a really complete team. They just beat San Francisco. But if I'm Buffalo, I, I feel like I just, they're what, the sixth seed right now. If I get in, considering the Chiefs are down, Joe Burrow is not going to be in the playoffs this year because he's dealing with an injury. Like we've criticized the Bills for the past three years about coming up short. Like as sort of the season has been at times a mess for them and they had the whole Sean McDermott controversy, this may actually be their best chance to win one based on where the AFC's at right now. Like they have a real avenue here. So I, I just don't see them missing out on this opportunity in the Patriots. I think the Patriots are going to keep it close. Like the line is 13 and a half right now on FanDuel. I think that Buffalo pulls ahead at the end of the game, but I just feel like I just don't see it happening again. Like, I can't see the Patriots sweeping this team with everything being on the line for Buffalo. I think a major factor, too, is just the injuries in the secondary right now for the Patriots, where Jabril Peppers still missing practice on Wednesday with a hamstring injury, then Jalen Mills also missing practice with a concussion. So you could be heading into this game with Jonathan Jones, Miles Bryant, and either Alex Austin or Sean Wade as your cornerbacks. And then Kyle Duggar, Adrian Phillips, and Marte Mapu as your safeties. So when you've got the full arsenal at safety, when you've got Kyle Duggar and Jabril Peppers, at least then you can give Alex Austin, Sean Wade help at free safety. They don't really like they are going to have to force. They're going to be forced to use Kyle Duggar at free safety on almost every snap. So then he's not making plays in the middle of the field like you like he can do. It just weakens that entire secondary so much to have now Peppers and Mills banged up as well as all of the things at cornerback that have happened from Christian Gonzalez, JC Jackson, uh, Marcus Jones, Jack Jones. It just makes things so much more difficult. And I could see some big plays uh, for the Bills on offense with either Gabe Davis or Stefan Diggs, just because the, one of those guys 
is going to be matched up with either Alex Austin, Sean Wade, or even Marco Wilson, who they just claimed off waivers at an outside cornerback spot without premium help at free safety. It just, it seems like a recipe for disaster. I do, I do still think the Patriots, this could be a game similar to the Kansas City Chiefs game where like it's close. Then the Bills pull away at the end and win by like 10 points or something. Yeah. I don't necessarily see a blowout just based on the way that the Patriots played against the Bills earlier this season, the way that Bailey Zappi's playing, the way that the defense is playing. Um, but those those injuries and issues in the secondary at some point, I feel like, have to compound to the point where there's almost no return. And being down your yeah, being down all these guys is just it, it could be really rough for the Patriots in this game. Yeah, Gabe Davis, by the way, was awesome last weekend. And I don't know what's up with the Diggs situation because Diggs, he hasn't had a 100-yard receiving game since before the Patriots game. Like, that's the last time it was against the Giants. Like, it's kind of weird, the season that he's had. But look, Gabe Davis is awesome. We know Josh Allen can make plays. I think that Josh Allen will actually run the ball more in this game than he did last time, take some of those opportunities because there's going to be chances to do that. All right, hey, Doug, before I let you go, I got to get your take on this because... As we're recording this, you get the Washington Huskies hat on. So we got the college football playoff coming up on Monday night. Washington, your team, they get Texas. And I think they got a little bit screwed having to go to New Orleans and play Texas, considering like there is a Rose Bowl situation going on there. They're four and a half point dogs. And then we have Michigan, one and a half point favorites over Bama. So who do you like in the two games? Uh, yeah, this is my, this is my Seattle roots talking about, I'm going to take, I'm going to take the Huskies over, over the Longhorns. I think that, I mean, I'm certainly pretty scared about that game just because like Washington, despite being undefeated this season was pretty inconsistent over the second half of the season, but they found ways to pull out games. I mean, they beat Oregon twice, but some of those games against like Arizona state and some of the opponents they were playing later in the season, uh, were much closer than they should have been. But I'll take the Huskies in that game. And I, I think Alabama beats Michigan. Um, I know it's like the SEC bias and everything. The SEC wasn't quite as strong this year. Alabama wasn't quite as strong this year. But I just can't imagine a national championship game without the SEC. So I think Alabama uh, beats Michigan. And then, yeah, Huskies-Alabama, which is the same matchup the Huskies had in the college football playoff back in whatever it was, 2016 or whatever. That did not go so well. Probably won't go as well this year as well either. But at least I want to see them uh, in the national championship because uh, they haven't won one since 91. Yeah, it's going to be crazy just these two, especially like I know you're more excited for the Washington game, but I think that Alabama-Michigan game is going to be insane. The one, the one thing I like about the uh, Alabama in that game is just Jalen Milrow's ability to run. Like I don't, I don't honestly think that Michigan is really. I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't think they've seen a quarterback like that that can take off and run. I mean, certainly he didn't have it in uh, McCord. Although you know what, McCord going to my alma mater now. He's going to Syracuse. I don't know how the hell they got a transfer from Ohio State. The quarterback. Also, the the coach that they hired, Fran Brown. He took two receivers from Georgia with him and a DN from Texas A&M. So we may be back, Doug, before you know it here. Syracuse is going to be, it's going to be that like that one year the teams have where they go like 11 and one next season or something. I, I like that. That's a plane in, plane in the dome there. But no, I think regardless, like I'm putting my, the cart before the horse, but if Washington wins, like the matchup versus Alabama would be great because it would be a, a college football playoff rematch from uh, 2016. But if it's Michigan, uh, Huskies beat Michigan in 1991 to win their last national championship, which they shared, but still it, it counts. Uh, so that would be fun too, to, to have a rematch there too. Who was their quarterback in 91? It was, uh, Mark Brunel and Billy Joe Hobart. They had kind oh. of like a, 
They had both guys in there. Steve Entman was the number one pick the next year for the Colts, so he was in that defense. Um, not a lot of like crazy s- superstars on that team, but uh, very, very, very solid squad under under Don James. I've got my I've got my Mark Brunel starting lineup here right now too. Oh, there you go. I liked Mark Brunel when he was with the Jaguars. Like those teams are fun, man. Yeah. Before those- he started crying about Deflategate. Oh my, I totally forgot about that. That was embarrassing. He started crying and saying how Tom has like betrayed the trust of the league. It's like, dude, are you serious? That was hilarious. He was literally on ESPN crying. What's he doing now? Is, isn't he on the Lions coaching staff or something? Lions quarterbacks coach, I think. At least yeah. he was. I, I think he's still there as a Lions quarterbacks coach. Yeah, yeah. He was like literally sobbing on the on the set. It's like, dude, you got to relax, man. It, it's not it's not that big of a deal. That That's... That's they gonna. We had a documentary on that yet? Like I don't think so. Has like there's got to be one that comes out because you have the whole bill, bill aspect to it. And then remember Tom, like he didn't think anything of it. Like somebody asked him about it the next day, and he's like, he just laughed. He's like, what? He thought it was a joke. Like like on it, it's difficult. It's it's dangerous to get me started on Deflategate because like I still want to talk about it. These like my I still think that there's a possibility that nothing actually happened that game uh, so uh, just to take two minutes here my my ultimate theory on deflate gate is that the deflator whoever the, the guy or whatever i forgot what his name is at this point ultimately was going into the bathroom to check to see if the officials didn't over inflate the footballs because that was that was brady's issue i so i think that there might have been something in place this is all a theory this is based yeah. on no reporting whatsoever this is my theory that like there is probably a system in place to just make sure that the footballs were not overinflated which still would have been breaking rules you're not allowed to do that but i don't think that they i don't think there was an intention to get the balls below the legal limit in that game but yeah no do you have a do you have a theory on deflategate that's actually a good theory so like because we know brady liked him on the lower side and like rogers likes him like all the way full like so maybe what happened is because brady likes him on the lighter side is throughout the first half the air naturally went out so it went under the psi i mean maybe that is what happened i don't know the only thing i do know doug and this is what i say consistently about the deflate gate thing they would have beat the colts with fucking beach balls okay <laughs> like they just ran it down their throat like they couldn't stop them and it's like the, the whole thing came because john harbaugh was mad about remember like the the formations they stole from alabama in the previous week and like that that that's one of the the greatest i, I think that's one of the great non-Super Bowl wins of the dynasty was they came back from two touchdowns twice. Edelman threw a touchdown pass. That game was awesome. Yeah, that game was fantastic. But no, yeah, the balls had, and no one, Michael Hurley's made this point, like no one has cared about ball inflation before that 2014 game or since that 2014 game. But because it was the Patriots, because it was Bill Belichick, because it was Tom Brady, it became the biggest thing in the world. And so much of our lives were eaten up by it, but I'm still completely fascinated by it. And like, it's, it was so funny that it came back um, in the Chiefs game where like the officials had underinflated the footballs and that like, yeah. I, I reached out to the NFL for comment. Of course, they didn't comment on the situation, which is just like, how do you not comment on that situation when the team does it, they get fined a million dollars and you lose Tom Brady for four games and you lose a first round pick. But if the NFL officials do it, then it's like, oh, well, no one's at fault. No one cares. It's, it is what it is. 
Yeah, and I remember doing a pod after the game. I'm like, Chad Riley sucks. Like, what's wrong with this guy? And then maybe he does, although he hit the game winner, the 56-yarder, but he had already missed a PAT and like a chip shot earlier in the game. But then after, like Harrison Bucker missed one, you're like, wait, what's going on here? And then, yeah, it's a great point, though. The NFL should have to say something about that. You're messing up the footballs, the Patriots. Tom Brady, like, he went to what, like three different courts for this thing. And finally, it was essentially he gave up when the ruling was just going to be, hey, it's actually in the handbook. It doesn't matter if you're right. Roger Goodell has the power. Like, that's basically the solution. All right. That is Doug Kide from the Herald. Doug, uh, good luck to the Huskies coming up on Monday night. And happy new year, my friend. Absolutely. Happy, happy new year, Brian. Happy holidays. Thanks for having me on. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Doug Kide. Always enjoy chatting pats with Doug. And he made a great point about the Mayo thing. If Mayo is the head coach and Steve Belichick's gone, I know a lot of people like to make fun of Steve Belichick because he's Bill Belichick's kid and all that. You would be losing a lot of defensive brain power fuel, not just with Bill, but with Steve Belichick as well. All right. So I am also, as we were talking about with Doug, super fired up for the college football playoff. I like it a lot more when it's on New Year's Day and not New Year's Eve. Not that not a huge New Year's Eve guy, but I just prefer it to be on New Year's Day. I feel like that's when the big bowl games usually are, so I'm excited for that. But anyway, let's get to our predictions. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. We'll start with the Patriots. So as I was mentioning with Doug, I do believe that the Patriots are rallying around Zappy, and I think they're going to keep this relatively close. Like 13 and a half is such a big number that I think they'll cover that. So you can do this. If you parlay Josh Allen over 27 and a half rushing yards, with the Pats covering the 13 and a half, that's plus 238. So some pretty good value there. That's what I'm going to play. So one of the things, and the reason I think Josh Allen is going to run the ball more is for this reason. In that game earlier this season, Josh Allen's average time to throw was 3.15. That was the second highest in the NFL that week. And he likes to hold on to the ball. Like that's not out of the ordinary. Like Josh Allen is a gunslinger. He holds on to the ball. He's letting things open up down the field, all that, right? So if you look at, though, more than two and a half seconds, he was 10 of 24. That's 41.7%, zero touchdowns, one interception, and a 42 passer rating. So he was bad when the Patriots forced him to hold on to the football. So this is historically how Bill has tried to defend Josh Allen, is he challenges him to take the easy completions. And sometimes he won't do it. That's why we see turnovers at times like we saw in the game last time where Josh Allen will turn the football over. So I think what he's going to do this time is getting back to those rushing yards. I think when you look at it, we're going to see a couple of those nine to 10 yard scrambles where he just picks up the first down. So I think that's where you get over the 27 and a half rushing yards for Josh Allen. It's just a couple of those times where there's nothing open downfield and the Patriots are in man to man coverage, say Josh Allen can just scramble, pick up a couple of extra yards. So I think 13 and a half in terms of the Patriots covering that 27 and a half rushing yards for Josh Allen. I like that in terms of the value to it, plus 238. All right, now our money leg parlay, got to bounce back. We had the Niners last week in the parlay. They were smashed by Baltimore. That was just an ugly game for San Francisco. I'm going to go back to the Niners. They get the Commanders. Now, the Commanders did make a quarterback change. I don't think it's not like Jacoby Brissett's going to make a big difference in this game. He may turn the ball over less than Sam Howell, but I like the Niners to beat the Commanders, the Rams to beat the Giants. I really like that Rams team. The Eagles, they're at home for Arizona. I like the Eagles to win that one. I like the Jags. Not that I like the team, but they're at home for the Panthers, the worst team of the NFL. I think they win there, and the Chiefs to beat the Bengals. So you can get that for plus 234. Again, Niners over the Commanders, Rams over the Giants, Eagles over 
the Cardinals, Jags over the Panthers, and Chiefs to beat the Bengals. Okay, another thing I'm playing this weekend is it's an Eagles parlay where it's this is for plus 188. DeAndre Swift over 63 and a half rushing yards and a rushing touchdown. The Cardinals on the season give up 147 rushing yards per game. That's the most in the NFL. And you would think that they're going to want to not push it with Jalen Hurts, right? We know that they like to run the ball with Jalen Hurts, but if you have a bad rushing team and you're in the control of the game, so to speak, you're going to feature DeAndre Swift, not have Jalen Hurts take a beating. So I think he goes over 63 and a half and gets a rushing touchdown. That's plus 188. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. That's 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. We will be back on, what would it be, New Year's Eve on Sunday after the Patriots and the Bills. James White will join us, as he always does after each and every Patriots game, so we'll break down that game as well. Thanks to Olivia Creary, Cliff Augustine, Jamie McClellan, and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.